I had had this idea because of the way I got to the business that the business was going to need a, a successor, yeah. somebody to buy it out. And then I happened to go to uh, a meeting where another uh, another individual started talking about how how the modern day business would create its own internal succession. One of the beauties of a pension is it pays you paychecks every month forever. You can't outlive it. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm going to be, you know, a day trader when I retire and I'm going to be a cryptocurrency, you know, magician and I'm going to be this and that. It, it's all about cash flow. When the, when the checks refill the bank account every month and you know you don't have to go do anything, that's to me what actual successful investing is. Yep. That you set things up so that the checks keep coming. I annuitize most of my retirement assets, bought annuities. They pay, if I don't live, my wife gets the same checks. So we have a joint survivor, 100%. It's worry-free. I set up my business sale so that the checks would come. Welcome to Get Invested on the Property Hub podcast channel, the leading weekly show to help you unlock your full self, health, and wealth potential. I'm your host, Bushy Martin, and each week I go deep with the best investors, experts, leaders, and founders to find out what it takes to break free from the grind, discover freedom, and live by design. Subscribe now and join me and get invested in the life you really want. Let's get started. Hi, Freedom Fighters. Do you work in a small business? Or perhaps you own one? And if you're in either of these camps, how much of your time and years of hard work do you spend dedicated to it? So why wouldn't you consider investing in the business? Now, I want you to park that thought for a moment. Now, for context, a small business in Australia is defined as one that employs less than 20 employees. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, just under 98% of all businesses in the country are small businesses, which equates to over 2.5 million businesses that generate 8 million jobs. Now, this is about 42% of the private sector workforce here in Australia, and small businesses contribute 35% of our nation's GDP. So clearly, small businesses dominate our country's income and wealth-generating capability, and they create a significant unrealised opportunity, but more on this in a minute. If you've been listening to Get Invested for any length of time, you'll know that when I had my Kiyosaki moment about 25 years ago, when I was at financial ground zero after my divorce and early life crisis in my early 30s, my new wife and partner in all things, Sonia, made a decision that everything we invested our time, energy and money in from that time onwards had to achieve three key things. It had to generate residual income, it had to grow in value, and it had to be saleable. Now, this applied to the obvious things that we invested in, like properties and shares, but it also applied to our business initiatives from that time onwards. It's one of the reasons why Sonia and I first started and built a property management rent roll, which generates regular residual income, which grows as the size of the rent roll grows, and the rent roll is saleable at a multiplier of revenue. It's also part of the reason we started our finance broking business because property is a game of finance where other people's leverage money makes or breaks your capacity, cost, risk, and investment nest egg. But mortgage broking also creates trailing residual income for life of the loans that grows as the number of loans under management increases and the loan trail book is also saleable. Now, we sold the rent roll about eight years ago to allow Sonia and I to join forces in our know-how property finance and strategy business, which was our ultimate lifestyle vision from day one so that we could work virtually from anywhere at any time with a location-independent team that's spread right across the country and other parts of the world to give our clients an awesome experience anywhere that gives you home loans with heart and puts the fun back into funding and helps you achieve your ideal lifestyle goals with property. So while the rent roll sale was financially successful, as we sold it as a going concern to another real estate company who wanted to expand their reach mm. to our area, 
In many other ways, though, it wasn't because the new buyer got rid of all of our existing close-knit, harmonious, hard-working, devoted team and replaced them with their own, which led to a lot of landlord dissatisfaction and a lot of disappointment, as the buyer just didn't care the way we did and didn't deliver the same client experience. So all of that long and hard-fought compounding trust relationships and value was destroyed after the business was sold, which ruined our legacy and left a very bad taste in our mouths. So this got us thinking. If the goal of investing your time, energy, and money is ultimately to create an ongoing regular cash flow income that will continue to fuel your lifestyle long-term, then why sell the business prematurely to an outsider and destroy the livelihoods of the team that have worked so long and hard with you to create a great client experience with deep repeat business and referral relationships built on trust and integrity that generate significant ongoing value. Why destroy all of this by selling it where nobody ends up winning? Why not treat our business the same way we build our property portfolio, where we applied our wealth by stealth long-term investment approach, where we initially focused on growth that has progressively been converted to cash flow that generates income for life? This investment approach also echoes my years of research that discovered that sustainable success in any investment takes a minimum of 15 years, and the growth is exponential, where the growth starts very slowly and incrementally over the first 10 years, and then it starts to blossom. This exponential growth created by compounding returns occurs in property, equities, and all successful businesses. The 15 to 20 year growth curve is evident with businesses like Steve Jobs Apple, Richard Branson Virgin, and even Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. And in fact, it occurs in any business that actually achieves sustainable success. They create wealth and residual income flow to the founders and owners who progressively work themselves out and replace themselves in the day-to-day running of the business, but still remain involved and committed to the business as brand ambassadors and business strategists, while other internal team members are grown to succeed them to assume a higher slice of the profit growth themselves that in turn builds their long-term legacy and their residual income flow and allows them in turn to replace themselves with the next generation and on it goes. So if this approach has worked for all of these great businesses, why wouldn't it work for us? It's a version of Simon Sinek's infinite game approach where the business itself remains and grows while internal succession creates a perpetual residual income for life for generations of business owners and operators. So the seeds of our fledgling perpetual custodian model were born. So we started to reach out to business professionals, but no one could get their head around the concept because they're all stuck in the old traditional business sale, merger and acquisition or employee share ownership space. But the perpetual custodian business model is very different. It's more akin to the Japanese Zaibotus model of long-term intergenerational wealth creation, where everyone wins through the benefits of sustainable exponential business growth. So I started reaching out beyond our borders, and I actually stumbled upon Bill Heastead in the USA, who's written a fantastic book called The Ownership Ladder that's also now been rebadged as The Ultimate Career Path, How a Smart Employee Can Buy Out the Boss. And I'm really excited that Bill has agreed to join us as a very special guest on Get Invested today. Because if this perpetual custodian approach will work for our small boutique lifestyle business, then why not the business that you're involved in? If you're one of the 2.5 million small business owners or one of the 8 million small business employees, why not create a wealth-building income for life by investing in your livelihood? If this is of interest to you as a small business owner or as a small business employee looking to grow your wealth and lifestyle income opportunity in return for years of your hard work and dedication, then you're going to love our conversation today. Because during his 32 years in business, Bill Heastand has successfully bought and sold a small business not just once, but four times through internal succession that's grown wealth for the participants and created ongoing regular retirement income So I'm very excited to deep dive on his own business investment journey and his book, which we're going to spread over the next two episodes. So welcome, and let's get invested, Bill. Hi there. Nice to see you, and nice to be here with you. Mate, uh, I've come to realize that people that think like you and I are are 
pretty uh, few and far between, Bill. So uh, I'm really looking forward to deep diving on on the subject that's close to both of our hearts. But before we do so, Bill, can I get you, uh, as a bit of a personal introduction, uh, tell us about what you do differently and more importantly, Bill, why do you do what you do? Well, I, I started back long ago without a college degree, which is very different. Few people think you can get into business and come to understand a business and come to own a business or grow a business unless you've followed the traditional path, got a business degree, and that just that wasn't me. So the first thing I did differently was did what nobody else does. And I I went into my careers without that traditional background. So I, I'm I'm trying to think what I what I do differently is today, I mean, I'm looking at it today. I've been retired since 2016. So, uh, you know, today I get up, I make sure my kid goes to, gets off to school on time, and then I go to yoga or I go to golf or I go on a bike ride, weather dependent, of course, but, uh, and I wait, and I wait for um, the checks to show up. Because ultimately, that's that's what this is all about. Yeah. You go to yoga, you go to golf, you go to bike ride, you go do uh, get a coffee, and the checks show up anyway without you having any personal time or intellectual investment in the project anymore. Absolutely love that, and and to get to that point, I'd love for you for for you to take us through. A bit of a reader's digest of your own journey, then, if you like, and, and focus on what you've invested your time, energy, money in over the years, and why, and how has this actually led you to the great lifestyle that you're clearly enjoying today? Yeah, let let me try because it is it is a bit of a convoluted journey. Journey. Um, I started my business life in the ski business. And actually, in my early 20s, after having been in the ski business throughout my teens, I was 22, and the first major sale I ever made was to sell myself to a ski shop owner in Hamilton, New Zealand, to go manage his shop for him during our summer months and his winter months. And so I spent a winter in my home state at that time of Oregon, USA. Then I went to New Zealand for six months. Then I went back to Oregon to another ski shop, met my first wife, and we decided to move to Hawaii. So I had 18 months of winter and 25 months of summer which tells you something, Hawaii didn't last because <laughs> living on a small island with a with a ski business background, nobody cared. Nobody was interested in, uh, in employment opportunities for some guy like that. I, I was somewhat of a, a longer-haired uh, hippie type at the time, so uh, that was uh, equally unattractive. So I... I came back to the US and and having no college degree my brother said well you can count can't you and i said yeah he said well get a job as a bank teller everybody can you know you can always get that job and i found that the world of money suited the way i think on a natural basis and gradually the banking Managers decided I was worthy of promotion and started getting promotions. And uh, about three years later, so I was in my late 20s at that time, my dad and I went skiing one day. We live uh, we lived in a place where the mount, ski mountain was just a couple hours away. So we're driving up now, 20-year-old young hippie, 
And prior to that iteration of me, capitalists were not a good thing. But having shifted my point of view, I said, by the way, Dad, what is it you do for a living? And this was actually his third successful career that he'd spent his early years when I was a kid as a lumber broker. Then he bought a truck line, small, small uh, local uh, and short distance freight uh, hauling and delivery. Then he sold that. And a friend of his uh, got him into the insurance business. And he found himself into the employee benefits and retirement planning business with business business owners since that was kind of his natural bent. So he spent that whole day just regaling me with stories of this whole business. And, and on the way home, he as he told it, after after I asked this question, he had to pull the car back on the road because he almost crashed it. I said, Dad, have you ever thought of taking one of us into the business with you? And so we talked about it a little more, and he said, well, if mom agrees, okay, let's try it out. So I gave my notice at the bank, and on January 1, 19, or January 3rd, 1985, I joined him to learn this business. Now, in, in the U.S., you, you and Australia have something similar in the U.S., it's called a 401k plan, where an employee defers money out of their paycheck. Well, that that idea was brand new to anybody in 1984. And my dad happened to be an early adopter of things, and he went to a, a million-dollar roundtable that's high, high uh, sales folk uh, insurance meeting, and this guy talked about 401ks. He happened to be the guy that got his congressman to put it in the tax code. That's how things happen in the U.S. Somebody gets a congressman's ear and says, this ought to be there. And uh, so he did that. Wow. Um, so anyway, I started working with my dad. And uh, it was a few years later, we were doing really well. I was learning this business really well. I was taken to it. And he said, well, you know, I'm 62 and I need you to buy this from me. And I went, oh, what? I don't have any money. Where am I going to get the money? He says, don't worry about it. The business will buy itself. That idea took me a couple of years. But in effect, the book that we're talking about is that idea from my dad. He said, this is the way small business works. The business buys itself. And he gradually taught me how that was going to be through the process. And so I wasn't that confident at the time. Um, and I became a student of Tony Robbins, which helped me boost my confidence. That was his early, early programs. <clears throat> now we all know his his influential story, but he really shifted my awareness of my abilities. But I still wasn't that confident, so I got a business partner involved with me to work out the deal to buy the business from my dad. So that was acquisition number one. Yep. My dad smartly said, um, well, okay, I don't mind the business partner, but you're going to have a really good buy-sell because he had been through enough business partnerships to know that's the only way a small business per, uh, owner protects themselves. Yep. Everybody agrees before the deal is done to the terms of the buy-sell. If you try to do it after, not going to happen. Yeah. Going to be very vague give nobody any power and you as the as the uh, you know each person wants to have their interests protected yeah so three years later said business partner packed up her briefcase and said i'm out of here and attempted to take the clientele and my lawyer informed her lawyer that 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 was a breach of the contract and we would follow the contract and so there was acquisition number two which was 
me surviving that exit of the business partner. And I was well enough uh, developed in my own confidence at that point and understanding of the business that I realized I didn't really need that to begin with. So I proceeded for the next uh, about 15 years to run the company on my own. Although I had had this idea because of the way I got to the business, that the business was going to need a, a successor, yeah. somebody to buy it out. And I tried, I hired a couple of guys throughout the years who were theoretical successors, but the, those were just non-productive uh, iterations. And, and truly, as a business owner, you got to be willing to do that. You have to go through. It's kind of like uh, you know dating. You got you got to kiss some frogs before you find out if one's going to turn into a, your your uh, prince <laughs> or princess. <laughs> Great analogy. So uh, uh, it's probably uh, I'm thinking it's nearly twenty years ago now, from where I sit today, that I hired a woman, young woman by the name of Mary, who. Pretty early on, I could see this was somebody who really had an aggressive point of view that was oriented towards being a business owner. She was a single mom, had a two-year-old, needed was had gone into a financial services, start from scratch and all commission right out of college. And um, that wasn't going to support her or her child. And so I grew her and gradually she started to outpace me. And then I happened to go to uh, a meeting where another, uh, another individual started talking about how, how the modern day business would create its own internal succession. And so I started working on that and started communicating with her about it and it was really about a five-year project as we were getting close to the time when she would retire me my idea was now i'm 67 as we sit today i was going to be working there until i was 70 in the emeritus status and it just so happened that another fellow that i knew who was who's a couple of years older than me, had a health insurance business. And we acquired a client on the retirement side that he had as a health and welfare client. And the client said to us, you know, to me, really, you ought to talk to Roger because, you know, he's not getting any younger. And uh, Candy, she is a, a pretty amazing associate to him. And so I took him to lunch and I had signed the uh, agreement with Mary to gradually earn her way in and me earn my way out. And I talked to Roger about maybe, maybe there was some merger opportunity between our businesses. And we agreed that Candy and Mary should have coffee because if they didn't like each other, there was going to be no, no deal. Yeah. Well, not only did they have coffee, they spent the afternoon and then they had drinks and then they had dinner. And by the, by the next day, they were already business partners in their minds. And so thus began acquisition really number now let's see one two th kind of three and a half because what we what it turned out was the best idea was to sell the two of them my health and welfare business and roger's health and welfare business put it together then mary and i ran the retirement business and i was going to work half days and take the summer off well that lasted through the rv trip across the country in the uh, that that summer, I, I realized I had no interest in working to age 70. Yeah. That was once I had 
once I had tasted the freedom of no desk, no phones, uh, I was done. And so we began the process of, of, which was pretty quick because we had already built the template. We And, you know, when you're going to do something like this, you might as well figure the lawyers are going to be costly. I think I think the tab was probably twenty five thousand dollars. And as the business owner with a young person as the successor. I paid for my lawyer and her lawyer because it's just otherwise everybody has to get represented. That's just the way those kind of agreement processes work. And she didn't have any money. He wasn't going to work for free. Neither was my guy. So, so I, I paid for both of those sides, but they signed the agreement and I was, uh, I was free to tour the world if I wanted. Well, except for the fact that I had a, (laughs) a fourth grader and a sixth grader. So, um, so that was obviously not uh, not really the story, but I was free to find some place. Now, we lived in, in, in Oregon, which is a place that is uh, notoriously rainy, beautiful green. And that's how it was beautiful green. It was notoriously rainy. The day we signed the paper, the final closing papers, we walked out of the lawyer's office into a sleety puddle filled street. And I said to my wife, we're no longer married to Oregon. We started a worldwide search, a variety of, uh, I told you uh, kind of in the intro, I, we, I was thinking Gold Coast, Australia. It's not an island. It's tropical, sun galore. And uh, I talked to an immigration person in Australia, and they said, yeah, we don't have a place for somebody of your demographic. So, so we... Uh, Continued our worldwide search and found ourselves in in a suburb of Austin, Texas, which is still has some weather, but it's it's very sunny. It's a beautiful place to live right now. Great school system, one of the fastest growing territories in the U.S. So it just happened to be a a, a miraculous real real estate uh, transaction to sell our house in Oregon which was a hot market, buy a house in in Round Rock, which wasn't that hot of a market in 2016. But by 2019, it was insane. So so there we are. That's a a really good journey, uh, Bill. I I guess if we we look back on that a little bit, uh, I'd love for you to share... Uh, you know, did you have any initial fears and feelings of concern about investing in one in your dad's business and then the ongoing iterations with bringing others in? What were the fears and concerns you had and and what helped you overcome those to to make that all happen? Well, you know, as I said, with when I started with my dad, I was really naive in terms of business ownership. He mentored me into the process and educated me in how the business would buy itself. So that by the time that happened, I'd been through the financials of the business enough times. In fact, the last two years, uh, I ran the financials of the business. So I knew what was going on. I knew when the money came in. I knew how much went out. So we had a very clear budget and we kind of backed into his transaction by what could the business rationally sustain? It wasn't, and he wasn't in a position where the business had to be his whole retirement and, and ideally, and I'm not either, even now I have the, the government's social insurance program. So called social security, that's some income. I have my own, I participated in 401k retirement savings my whole career. So I had a large amount of money there that I have annuitized. And then the business provided me with uh, with stream of income. Yeah. And there's another part of that story I will tell in a moment. But 
the fear was, as I mentioned, when my dad first mentioned business ownership, it was like, I didn't have any money. How was that supposed to work? And I think from a from a listener's point of view, that's the starting point. The owner is going to say, well, I want somebody to come with a $2 million check. And the employee buyer is going to say, well, I don't have $2 million. I don't even have $2,000. So how's that going to work? And everybody has to get over that. The reality of of most of the of our small businesses. Now, the U.S. statistics, I, I did an international business brokers search among lots of other internet searches for data. The data in Australia is the same as the data in the U.S. Yep. Nearly all businesses, in terms of numbers of businesses, it's in the U.S., it's about 95% employee and average of 10 employees, yep. not even 20. Yep. <clears throat> and in Europe, same thing. Yeah. So we all are sitting mostly in a situ- the same situation, which is the person who has a $2 million check to write for your business doesn't want to work for that business. The person who is going to run a 20-person business or a 10-person business has to work in the business. This, that's just the only way it can work unless they are acquiring multiple businesses of a similar sort. Yeah. So the the fear and problem of now it was getting 50-ish and I didn't have a successor. And I hired, and Mary was still new so that wasn't an obvious uh program yet yeah and so i hired these uh, a couple of other guys and and the, the the it's optimistic when you hire them and then it starts to set in you know this guy doesn't have it going on yeah it's an, it, it's not he, he either he either doesn't think right about the business or about his role in the business, or his ego is getting in the way. It's, it's too big. He thinks, well, I should be, you know, Mister Important. And and really, the the successor has to have a place to be mentored. Yeah. The the and the and the owner who is going to be succeeded has to become a mentor. That's another real challenge for us small business guys. Yeah. And women. We we start as an entrepreneur, and that phase starts or runs until the business is actually up and running. A lot of people like to walk around and say, well, I'm still an entrepreneur. Well, actually, no, you're not. You are a business owner. Yeah. The business owner's job is to continue to make whatever that engine is keep going. And so finding people... And then confronting the fact this one isn't going to work and saying, giving them their walking papers. And then there you are in the place you were a year ago or so trying to find. But you you just have to be determined and persistent. In my case, the person was was being groomed as I was trying to get these other people in place. And I just... That's uh, I suppose that's really another important piece of advice is look at your people, especially the younger ones who may not have the maturity yet. They may not be quite there yet, but there you can talk to them. You can start to open a conversation about what their long term vision is and try to help them move forward towards potentially becoming your successor. Yeah. I think the other thing is that a lot of people may have kids who they think, well, the kids ought to inherit the business or the kids ought to buy the business. And sometimes that works. In my case, it did. I was the least likely of my older brother and older sister, and I was the youngest. I was totally the least likely kid in the family to be the successor of the business. And 
I was the successor of the business. But it, it is a, a lot of our clients, since most businesses have small business clients in financial services, you get a pretty intimate view of what's really there. But more times than not, the the kids, if they're in the business, they're not that good at it. They're there because it's an easier job to get than some other job. So there's some family dynamic that has to happen. And and so the husband and the wife, the mom and the dad have to kind of come through that bridge and say, is our is our long-term security and is the ultimate uh wealth of the family going to be better served by trying to have the kids run the business or trying to have the business succeed us and then we will uh you know if you have income you don't have to use up the other wealth you have yeah. to live on yeah so there's part of the equation yeah a big part of the equation absolutely yeah totally agree and d- just um uh looking back on that journey then bill uh and you touched on some of these already but what were the the major challenges that you had uh, through that period, and, and not just professionally, but perhaps in your in your personal life. And from those challenges, what what have been your uh, greatest learnings and best changes that have come out of that? Yeah, um, it's a it's a pretty big swath of time, so it's it's a little hard to, especially looking back 30, 40 years, to really put the whole whole thing into uh, perspective or context. But I, I, w- I will say that the, the one thing about my personality and, and my business was that, uh, well, I'll, I'll anecdote it this way. When I was still looking for a teller job as a, as a bank, I went and applied at a life insurance company for a job. I thought it was a job. Yep. They were looking for life insurance agents. They gave me their test and they said, this is not your business. Go somewhere else. Go away. And so I, and, and nevertheless, I, tur- I turned into one of the top in the world life insurance producers in terms of uh, numbers. Yep. One of the top in the USA 401k retirement plan producers. I, I don't like to be on the telephone at all. I will avoid being on the telephone for for anything. So that that's sort of not the personality that would be typical in, in the business. And, and I had to cause myself. That was part of where I, I used people like Tony Robbins and um, and others that he introduced me to through he had he had a, an early type of podcast where he would send out a two CD set called Power Talks for uh, every month for I don't know three or four years. Yep. And he had some of the mo- amazing interviews on that, and it really introduced me to uh, to a lot of thinkers who who helped me find a way to excel in the business anyway, in spite of my own personal nature. So let's translate that to some of the listeners. You you may be the type of person who is not really mentor oriented, but if you're going to do an internal succession, you have to learn how to do that. Yeah. You and and part of that is to learn how to change the way your expectations function. Yep. That is to say that when when you expect an error-free job, for example, there's very few people, except maybe yourself, who can actually do it just like you think it should be done. Well, because guess what? You're the only one who does it the way you do it. So to become a mentor, you have to take the way you do things out of the equation and you have to start looking at the talents and skills of the other people. And you, and you take somebody like me, you know, who, who wasn't a natural, I was a natural sales person. 
but I'm face to face. I'm I'm also quite technical. If you couldn't tell that already, <laughs> and I, you know, when I was in the ski business, I would tell you how the ski worked, and that's why the ski was going to work for you. I would tell you how the bicycle worked in the summer season. You know, we had bicycles, how the bicycle worked and how that was going to work for you. Yep. And I did the same thing in, in financial services, which is I found a way to make my my natural talents. And my dad helped mentor that out of me. Oh. So, you know, I, now I don't know if that actually answers your question, but yeah, there, absolutely there, there's the yeah, that's the anecdotes I was on at the moment. Yeah, you got to get over yourself. But the, the the key message I'm picking up here is if you're going to be successful in this this uh, business succession exercise for yourself and those that are that are coming through, then uh, you need to get over yourself. You need to work yourself out of a job, and you need to have the you need to become a teacher in a sense in in relation to uh, passing on the key principles, but allowing the individual to do it in a way that that's going to work for them and not necessarily be exactly what you do. And that's, that's the biggest challenge for, for any of us. I think a lot of people believe, well, I might as well do it myself because if I allow someone else, they're going to stuff it up. Well, that's not going to work in what we're talking about here. And yes, might, may there be some blood noses along the journey? Yep. Maybe there'll be some mistakes, maybe that's the only way people are going to grow. And if you give them that space to do so, then they, they're ultimately going to become uh, much more proficient in what you're suggesting. So it's really great piece of advice there. Thanks, Bill. Now, Bill, uh, given all of this and and looking back on your quite diverse career and, and you know, the, the more I listen to you, the more I realise how similar we are in our outlooks on uh, life generally, I'd love to get your definition of what you consider to be sustainable success and talk to us about how you've achieved it and, and how can others. To me, the the thing that has made success sustainable is partly that I had a, a lot of fun doing my career. Yeah. And it really wasn't, I mean, it, money was a, was a side effect more than it was a strong reason to, for uh, me to do it. And so when you're when you're having fun, then you can uh, more more fully engage and you can sustain the inevitable downturns in what happens in the business world. Yeah. You know, they're in in financial services, but it's in it's in real estate. There are there are recessions. There are interest rate shifts up or down. There are just major world events there's there was in my career you know there was there was the 1987 stock crash that was two years after i started in the business i thought the world was over and then i realized no it's not then there was 9 11 shortly well actually in 99 there was the dot bomb where all those early dot coms blew up you know and and the market collapsed and then it went back and then 9 11 happened and then 2008 happened and then you know, it goes on and on and on. And and you guys had to, I mean, I wasn't active in business when COVID shut everything down, but COVID shuts everything down. There's always something like that. Yeah. If you are having fun in your business, then those kind of things, even though they're scary as all get out, because I mean, I, I, had I had the I had the dream house at one point when 9/11 happened and just because of the way the the cash flows occurred in our business it was a year and a half later before they fully dipped in our business and it was like we got to sell this house and move into a small townhouse instead because that's just that was the nature of thing. But if if all of those become your everything, instead of it's just an event that's happening, and and it will it will pass. Uh, you know, my dad was was uh, he, he had great one liners, and you know he was also Christian, so he he would often say, "This too shall pass." 
was just one of his favorite biblical passages, and it's so true. Yeah, extremely well said there, Bill. So if we look back over your uh, very varied and, and interesting career and fun career from what you've just said, uh, what do you consider to be your best and worst investment over that time, and, and what have you learned from each of those? You know, my the the investments that I was um, I was trying to be too effortful about were the always unsuccessful, and in my case, I I sometimes tried to be smarter than the market, and 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 anybody, especially in my, I would never tell my clients to try to be smarter than the market, but I thought, you know, I can, I can, those were always bad ideas. Yeah. And uh, one of the, one of the things that I was uh, really adept at for some reason, you know, I told you I had no college degree, but I was able to figure out how to translate for clients what pension actuaries were saying to them and i became i had i had a pretty large book of pension true traditional pension business yeah which is which is gradually going the to the wayside just for its own reasons but um one of the beauties of a pension is it pays you paychecks every month forever yeah. you can't outlive it and there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm going to be, you know, a day trader when I retire and I'm going to be a cryptocurrency, you know, magician and I'm going to be this and that. It, it's all about cash flow. When the, when the checks refill the bank account every month and, you know, you don't have to go do anything. That's to me what actual successful investing is. Yeah. That you set things up so that the checks keep coming. So what did, what did, one of the things I did, which uh, most people in the financial services industry really um, prefer not to do, and they prefer not to talk about it, is I annuitize most of my retirement assets. Bought annuities. They pay, if I don't live, my wife gets the same checks. So we have a joint survivor hundred percent. It's worry-free. I set up my business sale so that the checks would come. <clears throat> I get checks from our social insurance, uh, government pension program. And, you know, through, through that process, I've managed to become debt-free other than new debts. You know, I bought, I needed a, I needed a new Dolby Atmos and, and AV amplifier a few months ago, so I had to go into debt to get one of those. <laughs> but you know that that's choice based debt, and yeah. so if you can be debt free and if you can have monthly checks showing up, that's really what a successful investment strategy to me. One hundred percent, and we're exactly on the same page because cash flow is the oxygen and the the bloodstream for life, really, Bill. And you can have a big lump sum that you can blow on crypto tomorrow, uh, or you can get a regular check that arrives that allows you to do what you want to do for as as long as you're alive on the planet. That 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 is one hundred percent right on the same page with you as far as that goes. But uh, if we were, if you're looking back on your career, then uh, given the fantastic experiences if you've had, uh, and you were starting out again, what if anything would you invest in differently, Bill? Uh, I I actually I actually wouldn't. I really, uh, you know, I have. I'm sitting where I am able to do and have the lifestyle I am because of those decisions. You know, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story to me is that when it comes time to retire, and you mentioned, you know, you have a, a large lump sum. Um, that's all, that's all well and good right now. I'm quite sure I could do it, but I watched my parents fall apart 
starting in their early 70s until they were in their middle 80s. And they gradually fell apart more and more. And I was taking care of their money and mine. And fortunately, my dad had, had done a very similar thing. So I had that model to look at as well. And I went, okay, you know, the checks keep showing up, even though the rest of this is a complete hassle. You know, we had to hire nurses to take care of them. It was draining their bank account faster than you can blink. And um, that's that's the thing that a lot of people can't get real with themselves about is as we age, the potential. I mean, my ideal is I'm at 90. I'm going back. I'm going to yoga class that morning. But reality could be that, you know, there's another story and and I can't make it so that my kids have to try to figure out what well, is there any money to even take care of dad and mom that's that's just the it's one of the worst things a parent can do to their kids and so you go back to should the kids be in the business well would you trust them to run your bank account if, and, you know, that's kind of a good question because I, you know, I would trust Mary to run my bank account. Yeah. She just has it. And although I didn't know Candy well, because we did the transactions pretty rapidly, I, I would just having seen how they've run the business, uh, I would trust her to run my bank account. Yeah. No, that's uh very good advice because there's a certain character and, and skill set that likes doing that and there's a lot that don't so it's a, it's a very important thing uh to remember and and having that ongoing stress-free income uh with regular checks coming in rather than have to physically manage it and and as you get older just not having the energy or or necessarily the the time and intellect uh, remaining to do that, you're putting yourself into a, a dangerous position. So, Bill, I really want to thank you for sharing that really quite inspirational story. Uh, Stay tuned for part two of this interview next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Get Invested on the Property Hub podcast channel, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. And don't leave yet until you've taken the next step towards living by design. By getting my award-winning book, Get Invested, absolutely free when you sign up at knowhowproperty.com.au or bushymartin.com.au. And finally, make sure you subscribe to Property Hub to get your weekly dose of Get Invested inspiration along with every episode of Realty Talk, Australia's leading property show for red-hot property investing news and insights direct from industry leaders and influencers. Remember to always get invested in your knowledge and I look forward to seeing you next time.